Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 390 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and boy oh boy do we have a loaded show for you today. Not only are we going to tackle AEW and NXT as we normally do on these Thursday episodes, we will also be breaking down the biggest moments and matches from New Japan Pro Wrestling's signature event, Wrestle Kingdom 17. Among those signature moments was the debut of the former Sasha Banks, now known as Mercedes Monet. We have, as I said, an absolute load of stuff to discuss before this episode is out. So we're going to start this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast as we do every edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast with a quick reminder that this show is You guys know what to do at this point. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star written review. Tell people why you listen and why they should subscribe. It's to the point, I say this all the time, I know how many people listen. I see how many reviews there are. The number is despair. It is nowhere near each other. There's a number of you who have been listening to this show for years now and have not taken a couple moments and written that five-star review for us All I'm asking is please do so. It means a lot to me. And as I've said, we just want to hit that number, that key number, 400 reviews. And if we get there, I will stop mentioning it as much as I have been. What I won't stop mentioning, though, is a reminder to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We want to keep building that following. We're we're incrementally moving up, but we need your help to get there. Again, the number is nowhere close to each other. Uh, So follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You will get episode drops. Uh, news, analysis, highlights. We do a ton of stuff on there, but the only way you can get it is by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. As I said, this is going to be a three-part show. We're talking New Japan, we're talking AEW, and we are also talking NXT. And this week in particular, I'm going to go in what I consider to be uh, the order of importance and also uh, starting with the biggest story, which of course was Sasha Banks showing up at New Japan. So with that, We're going to kick things off with NJPW Wrestle Kingdom 17. We're going to break down the Sasha Banks situation as it transpired on that show. Perhaps some teases of her coming in to AEW. We're going to cover that right off the bat. I will then break down the rest of the major moments from Wrestle Kingdom 17. We will then move on to AEW and we will tackle NXT at the end of the show. A reminder, if you happen to be a first-time listener, whether of this episode or the show as a whole, we do have timestamps in our episode descriptions. So if you want to skip from one part to the next, you will have the opportunity to do so. On this show, we will have four timestamps. The Sasha Banks timestamp, the remainder of New Japan uh, breakdown timestamp, and then of course, AEW and NXT. But as always, I do hope that you listen to the entire show. So let's go ahead and get started with New Japan. We had the IWGP Women's Championship on the line. Kyrie, the former Kyrie Sane in WWE, fighting Tam Nakano. Kyrie ate a great delayed lifted tombstone for a near fall. Then she hit her picturesque flying elbow drop to retain the title in a shockingly short six-minute match. It was not the featured attraction of the segment, the match itself, but still, it was silly short for a title that you have just crowned. You've just made Kyrie the champion recently. There haven't been that many defenses. In fact, I don't know if there have been any. 
and you finally have it on your biggest show of the year, your lone women's match, and you give it six minutes. Again, this wasn't the featured attraction of the segment, but man, you can't give them 10, 12 minutes. It was really ridiculous. So seconds after the bell rings, Sasha Banks, now known as the CEO, Mercedes Monet, entered. She was wearing a Japanese flag gi. She obviously had different music, which was awful. It sounded like a slowed down remixed version of Jump by Criss Cross for any of you who know that deep cut from back in the 90s. Uh, Her hair was interesting to say the least. It was meant to be blue and orange flames. And I'm someone who, of course, went to the University of Florida. I'm a Gators fan. Orange and blue, my favorite colors. Hair didn't look that great. Uh, I presume it was a wig. We'll find out, I guess, as we go. Uh, NJPW mentioned as she made her way to the ring all of her WWE accolades. And they also called her the hottest free agent in wrestling. Mercedes got in the ring. She posed. Kyrie raised the title. Mercedes went to shake her hand, but instead turned her over into a completely botched new move that she's been trying out. Then she took the title and dropped it on Kyrie's body. Now the move was supposed to be a gory DDT, a gory bomb that the wrestler rolls off the back into a DDT on the side. And that's a great move. It's really interesting. It did not work in the moment. Mercedes then grabbed the mic and she said, she's in New Japan and stardom to make history as the CEO of the women's division. And she would take Kyrie's title in San Jose. They're going to fight in February. And her new catchphrase is, you can bank on money or Monet. I, I'm not sure. So obviously, look, we, we all knew this was coming, given the reporting. Therefore, the shock factor of her showing up was obviously eliminated. Also in Japan, even with cheering crowds, which they did have at New Japan, uh, for Wrestle Kingdom, I should say, uh, debuting wrestlers don't always get the same crazy reaction as they do in the United States in situations like this, unless they're a star returning home, like AJ Styles or Kenny Omega or someone to that effect. So if you watched this and don't normally watch New Japan, you need to take that reaction with a grain of salt. But still, this was not good. And that's being nice. There was a mix-up of whether the second part of her name is Monet or money. Neither really works. Mercedes' promo was rough as usual. Obviously, that's never been her strong suit. The presentation from the theme onward, I would call it mediocre at best. The finisher was a mess. The catchphrase is horrendous. She looked great as usual. The gear was totally on point. But if someone from another promotion made a debut like this on WWE or an AEW, we would be completely panning it. Now, at first glance, she if she is gone from WWE, the move that I would have made would be to have Mercedes completely reset her wrestling persona rather than doing a knockoff of Sasha Banks. It's like she impact zoned herself, if that makes sense. Now, she's good enough in the ring that she can make up for all of this just by wrestling well. And if she has signed or if she is going to sign with AEW, then Mercedes will get a second chance at a debut next week in Los Angeles with a crowd that's going to go wild for her no matter what happens, both because she's great and because she's another signee from WWE. If she somehow returns to WWE, obviously she will get a massive pop there. At this point, the betting odds have to favor AEW, given the usage of a completely different name, a completely different theme, and just 
the way she looked and acted in that moment. It's not impossible for someone to use two different names, one in Japan and one in the United States. Technically, Luke Gallows in WWE is Doc Gallows, just as an example, in Japan. But it's also not the most common thing for someone to be wrestling consistently under two different names when they're in major organizations. It was interesting, though, that Naomi, Bailey, and Asuka all traveled to Japan and were backstage with Mercedes. Now, this was likely for support purposes more than anything, but Bailey and Asuka had to get time off from WWE in order to do that. So that could be telling, or it might just be friends supporting friends and Triple H being cool about it. On the back of this, though, I did decide to search WWE.com, and I noticed that Sasha Banks, who was still listed as a current superstar as of January 1st, is now in the WWE alumni section of the roster. Now, Naomi remains on the current superstar section. Both had been listed there throughout this entire time. They were gone. They were taken away for a while um, by Vince McMahon. When Vince changed to Triple H, they got moved back to current, and they stayed there through the new year. But of course, now Sasha has been moved. Now, before we get to the rest of Wrestle Kingdom, which we are going to break down, let's stick with the Mercedes topic and cover what went down Wednesday on Dynamite, and then some of the reporting that's come through since the show has ended, because all of it is worth talking about. So on Rampage last Friday, Jamie Hayter said her match against Ukarashita set the standard for her matches going forward, and she doesn't care who Soraya brings as her partner. On Dynamite, Hayter and Britt Baker weren't interested in talking about Soraya's partner next week. Instead, they focused on the fact that Soraya will never understand what AEW is about because she's not an original. Baker later called herself the boss with a wink, which one would think solidified that it will be Mercedes showing up next week. Interestingly, this interview segment was not shown live in the arena in Seattle. Now, later on Dynamite, Soraya, Tony Storm, and Sheeta were all interviewed together for some reason. Soraya said Baker is trying to gatekeep the division and hold it back while that trio is trying to push it forward. Soraya said AEW has the best women's roster, false, and matches, false, in the world, and she's sitting next to the best women's wrestler. So because of that, she chooses Storm as her partner. Sheeta was clearly and visibly angered by this diss because she considers, of course, herself the best in the world. Now, watching this live, it felt to me like a total swerve. Like, okay, Mercedes won't be Soraya's partner, but it doesn't mean she isn't showing up on TV. I could see them having the match as it is now scheduled with Sheeta bringing Mercedes down after the bell for an attack, perhaps in a heel turn for Sheeta. Banks, or I should say Mercedes, is already a heel in New Japan. Or Sheeta could attack Storm backstage before the match, replace her in the match, and then Mercedes comes out later and the same thing happens. Now, given Mercedes has already debuted as a heel in New Japan, like I just mentioned, it would make sense for that character to also be a heel in AEW. Plus, we all know Sasha is better as a heel. Now, I'll get to some of the reporting in a moment, but first let me say, these were among the best women's interview segments that AEW has done. They all got plenty of time to speak, they actually said meaningful stuff, and they set the stage for next week, rather than getting rushed to shove everything into a 30-second window across each segment. This type of stuff is how you build a women's division beyond giving them more than one match per show, which as of right now, of course, is still not happening. Now, onto the reporting. 
It's primarily been concentrated since the end of Dynamite on Dave Meltzer, who reports that from all the people he's spoken with, which include people from WWE, people who are in the AEW match, and people who were around Sasha Banks at uh, Wrestle Kingdom, Mercedes Monet, I'm sorry, at Wrestle Kingdom, multiple people have told him that she is not going to be going to AEW, with some thinking she's going to do Japan for a while and then return to WWE once she is done with that. Now, I don't really know where that comes from, and having Britt Baker say the boss in her promo and wink at the camera is almost like too much for AEW to do and have it not be Mercedes. Like, it's one thing to do the swerve and have Storm in the match and either Mercedes replaces her or something happens with Sheeta, like I mentioned. That's one thing because you're still hinting at it. It's a misdirection. The person's still showing up. At the end of the day, once that person shows up, no one really cares that she did or did not wrestle in the match. It's irrelevant. But why would you go ahead and throw that in if you're not going to have signed that person and have them debut on that show? You know, you think back to uh, people wearing or saying best in the world. I think Darby Allen did, you know, preceding CM Punk showing up. Kenny Omega wore t-shirts. Like they're, when AEW does hints on television, they don't do it like tongue in cheek to just mess with the IWC and then they don't deliver. Generally, what happens is something delivers. Now, it's not, it's not to say that AEW hasn't failed to deliver previously. For example, the Christian Cage tease uh, when he signed and everyone thought it was going to be some monumental name, a Brock Lesnar or a Kurt Angle because they talked about a Hall of Fame caliber person and all this type of stuff. And it was Christian, you know, so, so they have, you know, teased stuff before and under delivered, but you don't go out and have your top women's wrestler, not necessarily in ring, but in terms of stature in the company, Britt Baker, save the boss and call herself that only for that person to not show up. Now, if Mercedes doesn't show up, that will be notable. If she does show up, but we don't get a Mercedes Monet is all elite graphic, then maybe there is something to Dave's reporting in terms of that she's just kind of dipping her toe and doing a couple different things, but she doesn't want to lock herself down anywhere. Maybe she signs a four-month or six-month contract with AEW and then determines whether she wants to stay there or perhaps go back to WWE. Maybe she feels she'll raise her stock enough where she can get more money coming back that WWE would not give her reportedly uh, when the renegotiations happened after she walked out of Raw. All these things, all this speculation. It's up in the air. It's going to be a really long week between now and Dynamite next week. Whether she does or does not show up, we of course will cover it here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. But hopefully I've given you a more full breakdown into hints kind of in both directions and why right now things are up in the air. What I will say is, and you know, I'm not someone who calls out other journalists or or people who do podcasts. That's not my bag, you guys know. But If this is some type of misdirection by Meltzer, then that is just poor form. And I don't think he would do that on purpose because he is respectable, but certainly things like this have happened previously. For example, with John Moxley, where there were reports closer to double or nothing when he made his AEW debut, that he had to shoot a movie and he wasn't going to be in Las Vegas and he couldn't make it there, all that type of stuff. And And yet he shows up just as everyone expected him to in the end. So it kind of feels like maybe he's being fed some misinformation. I still, if I had to bet money, I would bet money on Mercedes showing up on AEW Dynamite next week. 
But do I know whether she will sign a long-term deal with them or be considered quote unquote all elite? I don't have that answer. Uh, What I will say is that her debut in New Japan went over like a wet fart. I do think her first match with Kyrie at the New Japan show in San Jose, California in February, I'm quite sure that will be a banger and I'm sure we will discuss it on this show. Beyond that, right now, I don't know any more than you. I can only give my best guesses off all the speculation that I just discussed. So with that, let's move away from Mercedes Monet, Sasha Banks, and we'll cover the rest of New Japan Pro Wrestling's Wrestle Kingdom 17 in terms of things that I found to be important. We're not going to cover all 12 matches on the show. In fact, there's only five more things I'm going to mention, four of them being matches, and then an overall quick kind of review of the show. So let's get to the IWGP United States Heavyweight Championship. Will Ospreay defending against Kenny Omega. Omega ripped off a turnbuckle covering. He ran Ospreay into it early in the match. Later, he held onto the top rope as Ospreay tried and missed an Oz cutter. He took a huge bump off the apron, Ospreay did. Omega then put a table on Ospreay's back and double stomped him off the apron, literally through the table. Now on replay, we saw it was rigged, but in the live uh, stream, it was really impressive. Osprey came back with a brain buster into the underside frame of the table, a sky twister outside, and a flying hidden blade style forearm. Omega countered Ozcutter with a V-trigger to the back of the head, a poison rana, and a neckbreaker over his knee. Osprey flipped out of an attempted avalanche uh, German suplex, you could say, or maybe a snapdragon suplex, and hit Ozcutter with a weak cover for a near fall. Omega came back with what can only be described as an avalanche DDT off the top rope into the exposed turnbuckle, which led to Osprey blading at ringside. It was an insane spot. Omega countered on the ropes, dropping Osprey jaw first into the exposed turnbuckle. Then he hit a V-trigger to the back of his head in the corner. He tried an avalanche one-winged angel, but when Osprey tried to escape, he hit an avalanche German instead. Osprey got a second wind. He countered a lariat into a beautiful Liger bomb. He hit two hidden blades and then a super Oz cutter out of the corner for a false finish. They countered Stormbreaker and One-Winged Angel into Osprey hitting the damn Styles Clash on Omega, who kicked Styles out of Bullet Club. It was great. And then a third hidden blade. Omega countered Stormbreaker with a V-trigger, but Osprey hit a fourth hidden blade. Omega then hit a straightjacket German. Then Osprey spit in his face before Omega hit Kamagoye, which is Kota Ibushi's finisher, and the One-Winged Angel to win the title. If you can't tell already by my description, this was an all-time match. One of the best of both of their careers, maybe the singular best match of Will Ospreay's career. It was Omega back in his prime. At this point, when I saw him here, the only thing that came to my head is, I don't want to ever see him wrestle in AEW or WWE or anywhere else. Just New Japan. He belongs in the New Japan ring and he belongs in the Tokyo Dome. It is made for him. Osprey sold his ass off from the DDT spot onward. It was just an incredible performance, bell to bell by both guys, and completely impossible to follow, which made it really difficult for Kazuchika Okada and Jay White, who were in the main event. Beyond the wrestling, the match story was top tier, all predicated on Osprey trying to replace Omega in New Japan and then trying to wrestle like him in the match. The difference is, Kenny is the one with the experience in spots like this. So when Osprey tried that, Omega had all the answers. It wasn't until Osprey really tried being himself that he got Omega on the ropes, and even then it still wasn't enough. The Styles Clash was poetry, 
The Kamagoye was perfectly placed before the one-winged angel. The DDT spot I mentioned earlier was absurd. This match is everything that wrestling is supposed to be. We've largely on this podcast stuck with the five-star scale here on getting over. On the prior podcast I was on in this corner state of combat, you guys all remember it, I did give the fourth Kazuchika Okada-Kenny Omega match seven stars. And I did that multiple days before a certain someone else went ahead and did. And I did exceed five stars on that old podcast for two of their other matches. But here on Getting Over, I think it is more appropriate for the scale that I've been using to rate all these matches over the last three years to really remain at five stars with any matches that exceed that mark getting extra credit. So my rating for this match, uh, Will Ospreay, Kenny Omega, it is five stars plus, and my grade is A plus plus. It is obviously the match of 2023 so far. And I got to tell you, you know, there's 11 plus months left in this year, but I'm going to be legitimately shocked if this gets topped before the end of the year. And if it does, whatever match tops it is going to be monumental. Uh, This is a must watch in every sense of that term. The thing went 34 minutes. It felt like it was 14 minutes. Completely wild. One note of caution before we move on. This is just the beginning of their story. It is not the end. Osprey was largely turned babyface in this match. He's absolutely going to overcome Omega at some point. It could be as soon as Forbidden Door or Dominion. Perhaps he beats him in the G1. Then maybe they wrestle again next year at Wrestle Kingdom. We're going to see this match at least one or two more times. Not to mention the fact that Osprey still has business to take care of with Okada. There's plenty left here. But for what this was, I don't know how it could have been any better. So go out and watch this match if you have not. Hopefully, this will convince you to do so. We'll move on to the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. This was the main event, Jay White against Kazuchika Okada. Uh, This was a 4.25 star match for me. It was patently unfair that it followed the US title match. They countered finishers late with Okada hitting a tombstone pile driver. White then countered Rainmaker into Blade Runner for a false finish. So he used Rainmaker twice on Okada. A second later, Okada countered Blade Runner into a Rainmaker for a false finish. There was another long series of counters with Okada hitting Blade Runner plus Cobra Flosion and another Rainmaker to win the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship in 33 minutes. And unlike the prior match I just discussed, this one felt every bit of 33 minutes. Now, after the bell, White crawled up Okada's body, gave him a hug on the shoulder before falling down and leaving ringside with Gato. It was almost like he was trying to make amends, but Okada was having none of it. Shingo Takagi then came out, and he is Okada's next challenger, wanting retribution from dropping the title to him a year ago. Now, Okada and White, they've effectively traded this title since last year's Wrestle Kingdom. Interestingly, Osprey and White won their respective titles at Dominion last June and then lost them on the same night here at Wrestle Kingdom. Now, while this match was long, it was superbly wrestled from an in-ring standpoint. Okada using Cobra Flosion, a pump handle version of it, That would be a finisher for like 99% of other wrestlers. White did a great job selling in defeat. Strong match, worth seeing. Nothing I would watch again. As I said, 4.25 stars. Uh, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi defeated FTR for the IWGP Tag Team Championship in a 3.5 star match. This continued FTR's losing streak. They've now dropped the Ring of Honor, AAA, and IWGP titles all in the last 26 days. They also lost to Gun Club on AEW TV. 
Now, there have been talks about their AEW contracts expiring soon, but Dax Harwood also just launched an FTR podcast. It feels more like a losing streak angle where they rebound from it eventually by winning the AEW tag team titles. But I would say a WWE return is not out of the realm of possibility now that Triple H is in charge. I still lean more towards the former. It's just a shame that AEW didn't allow them to capitalize on holding the four major non-WWE championships simultaneously. It was a massively waste opportunity. FTR at that time was red hot and they have now been completely, completely cooled off. I'm not saying they still don't get fan chants and all that stuff, but they were like, for a period of time, the number one or number two babyface act in the entire company. And that is no longer the case right now. Uh, Tama Tonga beat Carl Anderson for the never open weight championship in a three-star match. Anderson wore a Japanese OC shirt. He came out under the Bullet Club banner. So that was all just really cool and interesting. Gallows was not with him. Uh, Anderson struck Tama with the belt before the bell. He had a neck breaker onto the metal railing and then did a clutch tombstone pile driver into the metal ramp. They teased an immediate finish. Uh, instead, they both hit their signatures with Tama catching Anderson with his own gun stun twice. The second one was completely botched, but he won the title. Commentary said the title would no longer be held hostage. Now, whether that's the end for Anderson or the Good Brothers in New Japan, I don't know. It feels likely given their WWE contracts. And overall, when it comes to Wrestle Kingdom, it, I thought it was an extremely top-heavy card. Most of the matches below the co-main events disappointed. But the positive is that for me, as an infrequent viewer who used to be obsessed with New Japan for a couple of years, this was the first time it's really felt like the New Japan I remember from the late 2010s. When you couple that with some of the stuff they're doing on Stardom, the fact that they have a Japan, uh, Japanese promotion now in the United States with NJPW Strong, it's making me really hopeful for what's to come from New Japan in 2023. I did not watch every single match on the card, so I don't have an overall grade. But again, uh, Omega Osprey, you have to watch that match at some point soon. Everything else you can basically skip that I already mentioned. So that was New Japan Wrestle Kingdom 17. Let's go ahead, move over to AEW. And on Dynamite this Wednesday, AEW debuted a new set along with updated graphics and production changes for the first show of 2023. The color scheme is now red, white, and blue with black still as the base color. And I thought the AEW logo was now being moved to a flat white design without any of the texture, the gold of the original version. But the old logo was still on all of the ringside barriers and the ring apron. It was also used on TBS's graphics and on numerous on-screen advertisements that AEW used, such as for the AEW shop. And it was just massively inconsistent. The only places that had the all white logo were the turnbuckles, where it's always been used that way, I think, on the big screen and on the dynamite specific graphics that were used on the show. Those are all sharp, but they're very similar to new graphics that are being used to promote the revamped daily show on Comedy Central. So I just thought that was kind of weird. The set is basically eight screens with LED lights lining the stage and a regular ramp. Commentary also got a much more professional table with some LED screens on the bottom. Honestly, I don't really have much of a take on the set. Like AEW definitely needed to freshen things up and this was fresher. The tunnels are gone, but there's still two areas left and right for heels and faces to enter. On one hand, I kind of missed the tunnels. On the other, this was more sharp looking. I think it's fair to say. But for all the people who have complained about WWE only using screens, this is basically the same thing. It just broken up into multiple pieces. Now, that does provide some depth of perspective, but in terms of the way AEW used it, it wasn't anything special for the entrances. 
There probably will be creative ways they can use the multiple screens in the future, but up until this point, you know, it's only been one show. They have not. So if I had to grade the revamp, I would grade it a B plus, but they need to do something about the logo because we can't have two different versions of the logos being used simultaneously. And I am very curious to see if Rampage keeps the same aesthetic with a similar or different color scheme, or if Rampage just keeps all the old AEW stuff and Dynamite is just being used with the new graphics package. Obviously the set will be the same for both, but we're not gonna know that until Friday. And of course we will discuss it on next week's show. Let's get to what actually happened in AEW this week. On Dynamite, Brian Danielson fought Tony Nese. This was a hometown match requested by Danielson given AEW was in Seattle. High intensity at the bell. Brian hit the psycho knee, stomped Nice, and then won with a butterfly crossface. I thought the whole purpose of Brian wanting to fight Nice was so they could put on a banger. Instead, it was nearly a squash. The crowd was screaming for Brian from the second he entered all the way through the end of the match. At no point did they stop yelling and cheering for him. It was really wild. After the bell, Brian called out MJF, who said he gets paid whether he wrestles or not. MJF said Brian may look like a goat, but it's not because he is the goat but rather because his mom probably banged one to make him. Brian turned it around saying all the boys in the back talk about basically banging MJF's mom. MJF said some journalists may praise Brian as the greatest in wrestling, but MJF is actually loved by Disco Inferno, Eric Bischoff, and Jim Cornette. Brian wanted to fight. MJF said wins and losses matter in AEW, and Danielson needs to earn a number one contendership, and he can do that if he wins on Dynamite every week from now until February 8th. Tony Khan apparently said that would make him number one contender. And MJF said he will fight him at Revolution if he succeeds in doing so. Danielson initially said no, and that he'll just wrestle when he wants, and then he'll beat MJF when he wants. MJF said he will hold Brian out from getting the title match if he doesn't do it his way. So Brian eventually agreed, but only if he can make a stipulation for their match. MJF brushed it off because a stipulation would help him cheat. And Danielson revealed that his stipulation wouldn't help him cheat because he would expose MJF in the ring with a 60-minute Iron Man match. If they had stuck to the wrestling and the title challenge part of this whole segment, it would have been a tremendous back-and-forth promo. But the overly forced insults by MJF and then Brian coming back, they were really an eye roll for me for the first half. It went on way too long, twice as long as it should have. Now, I did like MJF referencing Disco, Bischoff, and Cornette, who the IWC all hate because they criticize AEW. I legitimately laughed at Disco, and the rest was just icing on the cake for him. We also have, though, another convoluted story of someone having to jump through hoops to fight MJF. Now, credit to MJF because he called it out in the moment as he was setting it up, but it doesn't change the fact that it's repetitive as hell. Furthermore, Brian said in his stipulation, there's no DQs and no countouts, and he wants an Ironman match. But that's actually false, unless AEW is changing the rules, because in Ironman matches, you absolutely can get disqualified. In fact, we saw in the Brock Lesnar Kurt Angle Iron Man match on SmackDown, you know, a decade ago or even longer, uh, that I, th- I forgot who it was actually that did it at the bell, but one of them got disqualified by wearing someone out with chair shots over and over again, then got another pin, and they went up 2 0 or 3 0 or something like that and forced the other person to fight from under. They did use the stipulation to their advantage. So maybe AEW's rules are going to be different, but if you're going to do a 60 minute Iron Man match, with no disqualification, it's going to be a mess. And you would expect that people would get involved and interfere. So I don't really know how that exactly works. What I can't imagine 
is seeing these guys wrestle for 60 minutes at the end of another five-hour AEW pay-per-view. But given I'm a fan of both of them, and I would kill to see Brian in an Ironman match with just about anyone who can wrestle, this is a strong booking, and I am looking forward to it. We will see how they actually execute it. Ricky Starks fought Chris Jericho in a scheduled match. It was really hot to open the show. Jericho hit a codebreaker late, uh, but Starks blocked and countered Judas Effect, only for Jericho to counter Rochambeau into the walls of Jericho. As Starks nearly reached the ropes, 2.0 distracted the referee and hit Starks in the face with a bat. For some reason, I guess because it was convenient, the referee decided to do the three-arm drop technique to see if the person was knocked out. Starks' arm fell and hit the canvas the third time, but he immediately picked it back up, and apparently that was enough for the match to continue. Starks hit a rope-assisted tornado DDT, knocked 2.0 off the apron, and hit a spear for the 1-2-3 on Jericho. JAS attacked immediately after the bell. Action Andretti made the safe with a chair, wearing makeup on his face, selling the fireball from a couple weeks ago. He somehow evened the sides until the women got involved. They stole the chair, they low-blowed him. Then JAS beat him down. Jericho hit Andretti in the crotch with the chair, which really looked dangerous. And then Jake Hager in leopard shorts and the purple hat. Powerbomb Starks off the apron through the table at ringside. All right, so the action was largely exciting. The whole submission sequence was ridiculous, given AEW referees just last week called two knockouts in identical situations, which we called out and criticized. Now they do the arm drop, and his arm drops, it hits the canvas, yet it's not a knockout. Like, referee discretion, I guess, but give me a break. Now, the post-match attack was eye-rolling in that it happens constantly in AEW, but it was executed well, and the powerbomb spot through the table was really intense. So I appreciated that, but I don't know how excited I'm supposed to be about Starks and Action Andretti, who I didn't know until a couple weeks ago, fighting a JAS faction that has really worn out its welcome right now. So it's good, I guess, like it was exciting and entertaining for sure. The crowd made it seem better than it probably was. On Rampage, John Moxley said he slept like a baby while Hangman Page was hospitalized with a concussion because Blackpool Combat Club works harder than anyone else and doesn't care about the safety of their competitors. Really odd statement to make. Mox said he's been wrestling hurt for a decade and will be waiting for Hangman on January 11th if he can get cleared. Decent promo. They just wanted to shove Mox on Rampage again. Uh, On Dynamite, Hangman came out to reveal he's still not medically cleared to compete on January 11th, but apparently there's still a window for him to get cleared. Hangman said either way, they would fight and he would, quote, knock your dick in the dirt, which is quite a line. Uh, I assume it's something that people from the Midwest or South say, but I've never heard it before. Uh, Mox entered his mic, uh, worked for TV, but it didn't work for the crowd in Seattle. So he switched, it worked for a moment, and then it didn't. Mox said fuck audibly for the home audience, like the second or third time he's done that in the last like month. Hangman said he wasn't mad about Mox knocking him out weeks ago, but rather Mox cutting him off and joking about nearly ending his career before letting him speak when he came back. He said he wasn't out for revenge at first, but is now. Hangman then said he has two in the chamber with Mox's name on them. So he threatened to shoot him over wrestling. And Mox said their next match will be the same as the first, calling Hangman a punk ass that he will put down for good. So it was a hot dueling promo segment when it comes to crowd reaction. That despite the technical difficulties, Hangman has this consistent issue in that his promos are overly convoluted, such as suggesting he was not angry about being knocked out and physically injured by Mox, who on Friday just said he doesn't care about injuring people. 
but rather he was hurt by his words. Did Hangman Adam Page never learn as a child that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you? Like, I guess it fits with his character being driven by emotion more than logic and reason, but it's a pretty weird character for a babyface to operate that way. I just don't think that was the thought process, though, in him saying this either. So the match is going to be great. Hangman, Mox, big match, big show. My larger issue, though, is the way they've been incorrectly talking about concussion protocol, and I already went through that last week, so I'm not going to say it again. On Dynamite, we had a TNT championship as the main event, Samoa Joe defending against Darby Allin. On Rampage, Darby cut a promo saying he doesn't know if his friends and family, his hometown of Seattle, or even Sting believe in him. Sting called Joe a killer, saying Darby needs to stop worrying about what everyone else thinks. This was actually great, and I do mean great, as a backstage segment. One of the best for AEW in 2022, actually. I just love the way Darby and Sting went back and forth with each other. Uh, Darby seemed super passionate about getting the title back. It worked in every way. So on Dynamite, Darby came out to ringside. He dapped up Nick Wayne, who's like 16 or maybe 17. He signed with AEW, despite obviously not being able to compete yet. So when Joe entered, he tried to choke Wayne out. That led to an attack with Allen's skateboard. Then on stage, they fought again. Darby did a cannonball off of a 12-foot ladder onto Joe, who, and then Darby immediately sold a knee injury coming out of that. The bell finally rang with Joe, slamming Darby back first into the sharp part of the steel steps. There were some great sequences that legitimately had the crowd on its feet for the final stages of the match and the finish. Joe countered a flip over stunner with a sleeper hold. Darby put Joe into an exposed turnbuckle and then hit him with code red, following with coffin drop onto his back and then another one onto his chest for the one, two, three to win the TNT title. Confetti shot out with Sting coming down after the bell to pick him up in a hug and they celebrated the victory. This was probably one of the best ending sequences in Dynamite history. The match was damn good from bell to bell. I went four stars and an A minus. The crowd though made it feel like an epic fight. This Seattle crowd was off its rocker. Crazy from the start of the show all the way through the end of Dynamite. The spike into the steps was gnarly. The code red was crazy given Joe's size. Having Joe take the title off Wardlow now makes a lot more sense in retrospect as he was basically a transitional champion to get it on Darby in this spot. And Joe putting over Darby was huge, was huge for him. It doesn't change the rough booking of Joe and Wardlow, nor the fact that Joe's title reign was way too short with the TNT title after the swap, but the changing of the titles at least makes a lot more sense. They did it in a really big spot. TNT clearly wanted AEW to revamp Dynamite. They did it with, they've done it with booking and promos to some degree. Uh, They've done it, of course, with the graphics package and the stage and putting the TNT title back on Darby is 100% part of that. AEW and TBS, TNT, whatever you want to call it. I keep saying TNT, it's Turner, TBS, whatever. They love him as the champion. For some reason, he just uh, really worked for them during the pandemic era. They were super uh, over. He was super over with them. So putting it back on Darby and kind of resetting the TNT title picture, it was necessary after Wardlow's botched reign and then everything they did with Wardlow and Joe. It works. I don't know, though, what happens with Wardlow here and Samoa Joe unless he gets the ROH TV title, which is a step down from the TNT title. So I guess that feud could continue over a different title. Um, but yeah, that it was good. Really, really, really good. Also on Dynamite, we had a tag team championship match, the Acclaim defending against Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett on Rampage. Lethal cut an awful overhyped promo. Jarrett said Caster would regret his rap because he's going to end his career over it. Now, Caster 
had some killer lines about TNA and Dixie Carter. I tweeted them. You can check them out. Uh, he started off 2023 with a bang, at least from a rap perspective. Uh, Lethal put Anthony Bowens in the figure four leg lock while Satnam Singh threw Caster into the steel steps. That led to an ejection by the referee. Billy Gunn, by the way, was already ejected before the bell. Bowens countered lethal injection with a forearm, but Jarrett hit the stroke for the win as Sanjay Dutt pushed Bowens' leg off the ropes in the referee's blindside. They were briefly announced as new champions, but Aubrey Edwards ran down. She reversed the decision and restarted the match. 30 seconds after the restart, Casher pushed Lethal's leg off the rope as he was cheating again, with Bowens rolling up for the title retention. The crowd was on absolute fire for the restart and ultimately the finish with the title defense. Now, I found the booking here unnecessary, but given the challengers are largely shit-eating heels, if you're going to do this type of finish, they're the absolute right team to put in that spot. However, and I say this every single time, no matter the company, we get a match restart angle. It is the singular most frustrating thing for me that, maybe not the singular most frustrating thing, but one of the most frustrating things for me, that you restart a match, And then it ends 30 to 60 seconds later. In theory, if you're restarting the match, then I'm not suggesting it goes another 20 minutes, but maybe it's four, five, six, seven, eight minutes where they start wrestling again. They go back to a finish sequence and then the other team, of course, wins and everyone celebrates. Usually it's the baby face. I hate the booking. It happens in every promotion. Just get over it. And if you're gonna do a restart match gimmick, then actually restart the match and allow them to wrestle at length. Also, I've been very critical of Jarrett, but it's legitimately impressive the way he can work at age 55. And he was hysterical as a heel, trying to use his body to push past Aubrey and kind of not let her overturn the match result. The wrestling was fine. The crowd popped really hard for it though. And that made the entire deal work. On Rampage, Swerve Strickland fought Wheeler Yuta. Late in the match, Yuta hit a flying elbow strike and sold a knee injury with a one-legged bridge on a German suplex. Swerve kept attacking the knee, but Yuta stayed on him. Swerve hit his awesome sidekick. Yuta escaped the JML driver, but ran Swerve into the referee. And when the referee was kind of dinged up, Swerve delivered a low blow and the JML driver for the win. Quite a decision by AEW to strap up Yuta with the pure title and then have him lose his first match to Swerve, even if it was with a low blow. The wrestling was solid. I didn't care for the storyline. There was almost none, the booking, all that. On Dynamite, Swerve fought again. This time it was AR Fox. This was a homecoming for Swerve, who's from Tacoma. He also became a star at Defy Wrestling in the area. Now he wanted to fight Fox. They've battled their entire career as independent wrestlers. Fox hit a pair of cutters and a 450 splash for a near fall. I maintain no one should hit a 450 splash unless it is a finish. With the referee distracted, Parker Bordeaux handed Swerve probably some brass knuckles on the top rope. He punched Fox in the face, hit a ridiculous avalanche Death Valley driver onto the ring apron, crazy spot, and then paused on the top rope to kind of like mock him a little bit before hitting a coup de grace for the win. Great athletic wrestling match, the appropriate finish, really nothing else to say. On Dynamite, Gun Club came out wearing black for an FTR memorial where they talked about destroying FTR's legacy and setting off their losing streak. FTR's music hit, but given they just competed at Wrestle Kingdom hours earlier, it was an obvious ruse. The gun said FTR will never work in AEW again because they're the new living legends. And then they ended Top Guns out. Strong segment for a couple guys who are relatively inexperienced on the mic 
FTR is obviously going to return next week to a massive pop on the special show and presumably beat them down. On Rampage, we had an All-Atlantic Championship match. Again, Orange Cassidy against Trent Beretta. Orange hit Beach Break in a diving DDT. Trent then pulled him into a pile driver when Penelope Ford distracted him. Orange hit Beach Break for a false finish, followed by an orange punch for the win. And Trent was angry after the bell that Orange took the advantage given to him by Penelope. Kip Sabian, who was on commentary, then kind of like pimp walked past him and nodded it forward ahead of his match. He fought a jobber. He basically mocked Orange and beat the guy with a really shitty version of the Orange Punch. It was a massive waste of time. On Rampage, we had a TBS championship match, Jade Cargill against Kiara Hogan. Red Velvet grabbed Jade's arm to stop her from slapping Hogan outside. Now, maybe if you've watched AEW Dark, or maybe it's something I missed, I have no idea why Red Velvet didn't want her to hit Hogan, even though they were wrestling. Like, just didn't really make sense. Uh, Kiara then countered Jade into a bulldog, a hip attack, three kicks and a flying crossbody, but Jade quickly came back into Jaded for the win. Velvet walked up the ramp by herself after the bell. Kiara's run in the match was decent, but it was mediocre at best. Then on Dynamite, we get Jade and Velvet, who stopped her from hitting Hogan and walked away from her, tagging against Hogan and Sky Blue. Jade hit Eye of the Storm, Hogan kicked out, so she sarcastically tagged in Velvet. Cargill chokeslammed Hogan, prepared to tag in Velvet for the finish, but she refused. Hogan super kicked her in a surprise, but Cargill booted her head off, basically, and got the win. Now, AEW is apparently counting tag team wins as part of her total. So now she's at 47-0. There's been, like, so little attention paid to this storyline in terms of, like, actually developing it. I'm not even sure, like I said, why Velvet and Cargill are at odds. They've been doing this stuff with them and the baddies for, like, a year. Neither of these matches had any value. The fact that the same women out of their entire roster, the same women wrestled on both shows, and it was the only women's match on those shows, it remains patently absurd. I just, I hate this crap. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. And then lastly on Rampage, Preston Vance said his new name is Pedro Pedigroso. That's Dangerous Dog in Spanish. He said he's handsome and he can talk, but he's been stuck behind a mask for years. I have no thoughts on the former, but the latter is not accurate. It's an odd complaint because last week he said he liked Brody Lee, who put him behind the mask, but not the rest of Dark Order. It was just a really rough promo from start to finish. Now, all in all, this was a top tier episode, I would say, of AEW Dynamite, leading into what can only be described as an absolutely insanely stacked show Next week, seriously, like next week's show, the January 11th episode, has an opportunity to be the best dynamite of all time if everything transpires the way, obviously, that we expect. So we have John Moxley versus Hangman Page in that grudge match. That's a main event on a pay-per-view. That's not even the main event of the show. Uh, Tony Storm and Soraya against Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker. Good match on its own, like if that actually does happen the way it is booked. But obviously, the potential of Mercedes Monet coming in on top of that makes that a huge deal. We have FTR uh, possibly returning to the show and, and making a big deal out of that stuff with Gun Club. Then we have Brian Danielson against Konosuke Takeshka as a random match with zero build that is going to be an absolute banger in its own right. Uh, they did announce Big Bill and Lee Moriarty against Jungle Boy and Hook. Who gives a shit about that? It's horrible. 
And then we have the main event, uh, the Elite versus Death Triangle in a ladder match, the seventh match of the series for the AEW Trios Championship, which obviously the Elite is going to win and take those titles. So we are just talking about a loaded card. I mean, the final SmackDown of 2022 for WWE was loaded. This is, it's basically a mini pay-per-view card. And that Dynamite next week should be outstanding whether Mercedes shows up or not. I'm very much looking forward to it. If that thing does not either, not necessarily break a ratings record because CM Punk and John Moxley and some of the stuff they've done before obviously led to big ratings. But if that show does not do a really solid demo and break a million, then that would be a massive disappointment for AEW. I think it'll do both. Uh, Huge show ahead. Very much looking forward to that next week. So with New Japan and AEW now in the books, let's move over to NXT. And this show was largely building towards New Year's Evil, a special show next Tuesday, which even itself is kind of just a half step before NXT Vengeance Day, a premium live event going down, I believe it's in Charlotte, North Carolina, in early February. So here's what happened this week in NXT. We had the Grayson Waller effect with Braun Breaker. Waller backstage said he was rested and confident from his Australia trip, and he has Breaker's number. Grayson talked shit about outsmarting Braun with the flak jacket, and Breaker in the ring just kept no-selling all the insults. He refused to allow Waller to light his fuse and get under his skin. Braun flattered uh, Waller for his cunning and his ability to make viral moments. Breaker said fans may talk about Waller after their match, but he's the one who will be leaving as champion. Braun then tagged his line, so Grayson called him overrated, saying he stole his dad's gimmick. Breaker got in his face, said he loved his dad, and he wouldn't buy into his shit. When Waller pulled his arm back, Breaker popped him in the head, then hit his power slam, and then did a huge topic on Hero, holding Waller's iPhone to create his own viral moment. It was a fine go-home segment, you know, for their match. The first half of it is rough as hell. Waller actually has a major problem, and he, you know, he's great on the mic, he's really good in the ring, A lot of people compare him to The Miz. But what The Miz knows how to do that Waller does not is The Miz knows when to shut the fuck up. And Waller struggles to do that. He does not let his opponent, the person in the ring with him, speak. He talks over them. And it is a major problem that it was grating to me while I was watching the segment. Not in a good way, like go away, stop talking type of grating. Uh, More than anything else, This segment reminded me that for all of my problems with Braun, the guy is just an absolute freak athletically. And that continues to cover for him being super green in a number of other ways. Breaker's clearly going to win the match. My presumption is we get Breaker against Carmelo Hayes at Stand and Deliver on WrestleMania weekend. The only wrench thrown into that potentially is if they decide to use a main roster superstar in that spot to sell tickets and such. But it's come time for Braun to drop the main title and remain in NXT after he does. I just don't think it's going to happen next week. Apollo Crews fought Carmelo Hayes, speak of the devil. Melo opened with a springboard leg drop on a draped Crews. After a powerbomb, he transitioned a kickout into a single leg crab. Apollo went on a run, but got caught with a nice lifted cutter. Crews dodged the finisher and hit a sick blockbuster inverted DDT flying off the middle rope. Crews caught him with a jumping knee, German suplex and press slam. Mello avoided the standing moonsault. He came back with a cutter and nothing but net and got the win. These guys are like so damn talented. It just felt like they were kind of operating around 75% for much of the match. It was strong work from bell to bell. 
not necessarily what they could do if given a bigger stage or more time. I did go 3.5 stars B, clearly the right person won. Uh, so Axiom had a scheduled match with Trick Williams. Moments after that opening match ended, Axiom flew in from out of nowhere off the ropes. He splashed both guys. Then he did the same with a moonsault outside. This match was in progress coming out of commercial. Trick went for a roundhouse kick, but got caught with a clean punch. And then Axiom followed with the golden ratio for the one, two, three. Trick held Axiom's legs after the bell so Mello could attack. Uh, Cruz, of course, made the save. I didn't really see much of a point to doing the post-match attack other than to run a tag team match. That has no meaning because both of the singles matches already happened. The wrestling was fine. Axiom is obviously on another experience and talent level than Trick right now, but Williams is improving and he does have a high ceiling. A good bounce back win for Axiom as well because he has taken a few L's recently. Kofi Kingston fought Joe Gacy. New Day were giving pretty deadly their weekly list of needs. When Schism came up talking shit, Gacy said they're more of a real family than New Day. Kingston obviously took offense to that and Gacy was excited to beat a former WWE champion and the greatest tag team champion ever. Xavier Woods got into it with Booker T on commentary. It was really interesting, that dynamic. Kofi hit the crouching frog splash. Gacy avoided trouble in paradise, hitting a headbutt and a DDT. Daya distracted, so Kingston hit them with a huge tope. Back inside, he countered Gacy and hit trouble in paradise to get the win. And when I got that bell, I breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, just I didn't think that they were going to put Joe Gacy over Kofi, but... For a moment there, it was a concern. Uh, PD later were fed up doing New Day's bidding and they offered to fight a three-team gauntlet next week to earn a number one contendership. New Day agreed. Uh, I mentioned Woods and Booker were contentious with one another. It was really tough to tell if they were working or if there was some actual animosity there. And I gotta say, their back and forth on commentary was more interesting than the match itself, which was fine, but completely unspectacular. At least the right person won and Gacy got to work against a notable superstar. The tag team gauntlet should be interesting. I, I like that booking. It's really interesting. Them just doing something a little bit different, of course, with uh, creating a crowning a number one contender. I just really hope that this is not a quick title change back. New Day should hold these at least until Vengeance Day in February and maybe even longer. I mean, I hope they have a plan for New Day at WrestleMania, but if they don't, them taking this all the way to stand and deliver is really not the worst idea. A toxic attraction entered with Gigi Dolan saying they will remain the best faction in NXT and leave the old days in the past with 2020. Well, one problem with that, Gigi, there's only two women in your group now. That makes you a team, not a group, not a faction. So you got to add some people to be a faction. JC Jane said they will call all the shots in 2023 and Roxanne Perez is their main target. Indy Hartwell entered talking shit to Toxic. Then Cora Jade, Nikita Lyons, Zoe Stark, and Wendy Chu all cut promos from different parts of the crowd. Finally, Thea Hale got really excited for a girl fight and all the women started brawling in the ring. Isla Dawn came down to get involved with Alba Fire attacking her. They fought backstage into the parking lot while the rest of the division stormed into the ring. Finally, Roxy appeared in the crow's nest and she announced a battle royal with the winner becoming the number one contender for Vengeance Day. The women then resumed fighting each other. Now for all the promos, JC, Indy, Cora, Nikita, Wendy, and Thea were all solid. Gigi sounded like she was reading off a paper. And Zoe was, not only was she rough in general, she got completely drowned out by the crowd booing her. We haven't gotten one of these battle royals since July. So the booking was fine. And I liked how they got into it with an angle and the women coming out of the crowd to brawl each other rather than just announcing a battle royal. It was also funny how all the women paused for the announcement. And then once Roxy finished, they just kept fighting each other. This was also a reminder though, 
that the women's division in NXT is notably young. It could really use a few veterans. Thea remains hysterical in her like overexcited role. I could definitely see this battle royal being a spot where Tiffany Stratton makes a return, even though that would be quite similar to what they did with Zoe Stark in the last battle royal in July, as I mentioned. But the booking's fine. Would I have loved a little mini tournament to determine the number one contender, given there's still a few weeks left? Yeah, I'd have preferred that, but the battle royal is not the worst decision. So Fire and Dawn, I mentioned, they continued brawling in the parking lot and then backstage. It wasn't notably violent, but referees tried to like half-heartedly break them up. They fought atop a huge case when Dawn was pushed backwards into a pile of chairs and two by fours. It was clearly a staged, uh, pre-taped spot. Alba then wheelbarrowed Isla to ringside, throwing her into the post and into the announce table before the bell finally rang for their scheduled match. Fire chopped the shit out of Dawn's chest and hit a gory bomb for a near fall. Isla threw a chair into her head, knocking Alba off the ropes. Dawn used a damn wrench on Fire's fingers. Alba hit a tope suicida and grabbed the table, but Isla slammed her fingers into a toolbox. Alba put Isla on the table and tried a swanton bomb off the top rope outside. Dawn smiled as she saw it coming, but the table didn't break when Alba hit her. It was really gnarly. So Alba picked up Isla, hit the gory bomb into the table to break it, and then pinned her in the ring. So large parts of this were really strong, but given it was like three segments and a really long backstage brawl without any crowd reaction, it was slow until they got into the ring. Isla remains to me super interesting. Alba clearly is one of the most talented women on the roster, main or NXT. I'm not sure how long I'll need to repeat it, but the gory bomb is far superior as a finisher to the swanton for her. Also, swantons into tables almost never work because they lack the necessary impact, especially when you're dealing with women who are simply lighter than men. This is the upteenth time we've seen a table fail to break in a women's match, even though they're rigged. They have to use body weight moves, power bombs, splashes, elbow drops where you land on your side, stuff like that. Hopefully this is a lesson learned. And it's not just NXT and WWE where this happens. It's in all of wrestling. Women's table spots, great. Do them all the time. You need to use full body weight moves to make sure the table breaks. Indu Sure got a promo package where we finally saw footage of their real lives when they were back in India as the million dollar arm and a well-known actor respectively. They explained that they are respected in India, but not the United States where no one cares about them. And that's why they wanted to make sure the Creed brothers were 100% for their match. So there's no excuse and they can make a real impact when they get the win. It took four years of these guys being in WWE for us to actually be told stuff about their real lives. Better late than never. Strong video package ahead of the New Year's Evil match. Maybe the match I'm looking forward to most on the show. Indu Sure, Creed Brothers in a tag team match. Folks, there's only one definition for that. And that's what we're going to get next Tuesday. A video was shown of Stax, who was handcuffed and interrogated by Dijak last Wednesday morning after clearly having taken a beating. Dijak took exception to Tony D'Angelo being the Don of NXT, saying he's the real face of fear. Then he took a tape out of a recorder and left a key. And the key was so Stax could let himself go, but the tape out of the recorder, I have no idea. So we had Dijak against Stax on NXT. Dijak caught him out of the corner with a huge boot. Uh, then did a 720 flip, Stax did, when he ate the boot. Uh, then he bounced Stax off the ropes into Feast Your Eyes for the win. He went to repeat it when D'Angelo attacked and challenged him for New Year's Evil. There's just something missing with the Dijak gimmick. It's boring as sin. 
The finisher doesn't work. The whole justice concept is dated. The look is dated. This is a talented dude. But what they're doing right now, it just ain't it. They need to repackage it, make adjustments. They got to do something because this is not working. Uh, Wesley backstage said he knows people want the North American title, but he's just excited to see Dijak and D'Angelo beat the hell out of each other next week. He said he would be ringside on commentary and suggested that the winner become the number one contender. We already knew Dijak was winning. This obviously confirmed it. It was actually one of Wesley's better promos though. Drew Gulak was doing a training seminar with Chase U students when Andre Chase came in asking, what the fuck is going on? Turns out Charlie Dempsey is hurt and he can't be in the scheduled match. Gulak called the Chase U students soft with Chase, Duke Hudson, Gulak, and Hank Walker all getting into a heated confrontation. So we ended up getting Chase against Gulak in a singles match. This was technical. There were some handshakes after rope breaks early. Dempsey backstage was watching the match in a sling. He removed it and walked away. Gulak denied a handshake later by punching Chase in the face. This was like in the middle near the end of the match. Then he submitted him in the Gulak, but refused to release after the bell before celebrating and telling Walker, that's how you do it. Dempsey approached them later saying he'd be ready to fight next week. So the gimmick with Gulak is working for me, right? The idea of Walker not buying into it, maybe even going to chase you with perhaps Dempsey winding up as the first member of Gulak's group. That to me would make a lot of sense. And I do find this to be a relatively interesting low-card storyline. Briggs Jensen and Fallon Henley were celebrating last week's win. Kiana James came up promising not to fight and actually wishing her good luck in the battle royal. It was meant to seem genuine. Then she told Jensen to call her and winked at him. I've criticized the acting of these four over the last few weeks. This actually seemed pretty natural by comparison to what we've gotten recently. So that's a plus. Uh, Oro Mensah fought Javier Bernal. Mensa backstage was excited to make 2023 his year. Bernal walked up with his new Christmas album. Mensa called it cringe. Uh, Bernal then attacked Mensa on his way to the ring for their match. Mensa hit a couple athletic moves and caught Bernal in the ropes for a submission. He eventually won with a roundhouse kick in the corner. The guy remains impressive in the ring. The gimmick is shit. He's not a good promo. He's got a long way to go. And that is really the wrap-up of NXT this week. It was not a particularly notable show in terms of everything or anything, I guess, that went down. It did build a little bit towards New Year's Evil, a little bit as well for Vengeance Day. I would say that NXT was actually running hot uh, towards the end of 2022. The last couple of weeks, though, just haven't hit the way the prior weeks did. And I don't, I can't actually put my finger on it, but clearly we will uh, figure out what they are planning uh, for Vengeance Day as New Year's Evil takes place next week. And we will see the way that card gets developed if that is something that we should be getting excited about. Generally, to this point, when NXT, even the 2.0 version, and now the Fire version, let's call it, or the white and gold version of NXT, when they build to big events, they still feel pretty big and they still have come across really well. We just saw it with NXT deadline in December. So I'm not down on what we're gonna get from NXT Vengeance Day, It's just right now, I would like to see it pique my interest a little bit more than it has to this point. But folks, that is it uh, from this episode. We covered a lot across uh, Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet, uh, New Japan, Wrestle Kingdom 17, AEW, and NXT. Because of this, uh, it shifted our schedule a bunch. You know, we were originally supposed to publish this episode Wednesday night and then again Thursday morning. Instead, it's coming out Thursday afternoon. So we're gonna have to turn around and drop those 2022 Getting Over Awards, AKA the Meaties, uh, at an unscheduled time. I've yet to determine when exactly that be, whether it's gonna be Friday or perhaps even 
next week at this point. But don't worry, the Getting Over Awards are coming soon. Keep an eye out. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Over Cast, not only to find out when the episode drops, but so you can listen to it as soon as it is available. Again, on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, not only the episode drops and announcements, news, analysis, a bunch more. We did drop a news item, actually. We uh, learned this week William Regal's new title with WWE. We tweeted that, of course, had it before anyone else. We don't try to break news here. That's not our jobs uh, with Getting Over, but occasionally we do get the nugget or two, and we do share it for you on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Also, please remember that this podcast... So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little time. Write up a five-star review as well. And if you do, if you submit it for Apple Podcasts, we will read it live right here on this show. It has been a wild week already in the world of professional wrestling, kicking off 2023 with a bang. I appreciate you all joining us for our second episode of the week. At this point, there is nothing left to say, so it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.